0: We've probably all heard the saying, uh, there are no shortcuts in life. Uh, the saying is false, I think, but the sentiment is true. Pardon me. There are actually tons of shortcuts in life. It's just generally not uh, wise to take most of them. Uh, it doesn't always feel like that, though. Um, you know, it, it can seem like, you know, I really like um, these, this hobby. I like, uh, you know, I like video games. I like fishing. I like uh, being on social media. So it would seem like if I can figure out a way to, to not work or to not work very much, surely I will, I'll just feel better. I'll be happier because I'll be doing this other stuff. That I like better. I mean, work gets in the way of a lot of hobbies. But the links between not working—you uh, can find links between being unemployed or underemployed. But it doesn't have to be even work that you make money doing. The links between not having work and serious health issues—I'm heart disease. Diabetes, strokes, depression, you name it. The links between um, not working and just general satisfaction with life, they, they're too numerous to mention. I really, I, I wanted, I looked up studies because I wanted to support this with some evidence. There are so many, you can find them yourself, there, there's so many I wanted to find that because I'm convinced studies show that people who say studies show before they make a point, most of them have not looked at any studies before they say that. The research tells us that the people who say research tells us before making a point haven't looked at a bit of research. So, uh, but I, I'm telling you, it is out there. There's, there's lots of it, you can it, and it's quite easy to find Most of the things in life that seem like shortcuts work like that. It seems at the time like I'll be happier. But in the long run, it doesn't work out. Well, for quite a while now in the book of 1 Samuel, we've been following King Saul, the first king of Israel, and he was a man that loved him a shortcut. He was constantly over and over, confronted by sort of a a fork in the road. One fork was undoubtedly what God wanted him to do, what would be best in the long run for him to do, but it was hard. And so he always chose what seemed like a better path, like, like a shortcut. And it never works. Well, today... This is like Saul's shortiest shortcut. It's the shortcut he's going to be on literally for the rest of his life. It's something that he's convinced is going to make him happier if he can just get this done. Let's just read it and we'll see if you can zero in on, hone in on, catch the very subtle... uh, hint at what this shortcut is that he thinks might make him happier. Let's read our passage. I just walked through the biggest cobweb up here. Uh, if the spider comes to start eating me, please uh, come rescue me. Everybody off. Okay. All right. First Samuel chapter 18, 10 through 30. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp or the lyre with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed David from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand. And David went out and came in before the people. He was a military leader. Verse 14, David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that David was prospering greatly, Saul dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Verse 17, Then Saul said to David, here's my older daughter Merib, I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a vigilant man for me and and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, my hand shall not be against David, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, who am I and and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, uh, for a wife. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul, Saul the thing was agreeable to him, Saul thought, I will give Michael to David, that she may become a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David for a second time, uh, you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, Is it, a trivi- is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Since I'm a poor man and I'm lightly esteemed. Verse 24, The servants of Saul reported To Saul, according to all these words which David spoke, then Saul said, here's what you should say to David. The king does not desire any dowry except a 104 skins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Verse oops. Verse 26b, before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins and gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus, David was, uh, Saul was David's enemy continually. Verse 30, then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. And so David's name was highly esteemed. Okay. Okay. Sometimes, I know, you can read a passage from the Bible, even a narrative, a story. You can read it and kind of go, what was that even about? You ever had that experience? This is not one of those times. It's really obvious to tell what this story is about. Because there's a few things that just get repeated over and over and over. So I don't think we have to go line by line through that long story. We just have to talk about these four things that get repeated or and or in the passage. This is what it's about. First, Saul fears and hates David and he wants David dead. Did you catch that in that story? That's the shortcut Saul wants to take. Second, everyone else loves David. It's repeated over and over. Third, God is with, with David. And fourth, David succeeds in everything that he does. And there's actually a cycle in that. Because every time David succeeds in all that he does, it makes Saul more afraid. Everyone else loved David more. Saul sees God as with David, and then Saul wants David dead, even worse than he did before. That's the passage. So, we know Saul wants David dead. Let's talk about that a bit. Why? Why does King Saul want this hero killed so badly? There's a couple of reasons, maybe three. First, Saul wants David dead just because Saul is jealous of David. Everyone seems to love David. Saul's son, Saul's daughter, all of the people, the people in Saul's administration. And we know Saul He wants the adoration and respect of all of the people. And when he sees David, he thinks David has more of that than he does. Saul thinks, well, instead of being sort of more like David, and in the long run people might respect me more, he wants a shortcut. If I kill David, I'll feel better. I will compare better to dead David than I do live David. Second, Saul wants David dead because he assumes that David is ambitious. He assumes David wants, to be, wants his position because of David's own ambition. Uh, we saw this last week. Um, uh, Saul said, you know, he's already got the love of all the people. What more could he want besides just to be king? He, there's no way he'll be satisfied with everyone loving him. He wants my job. That's why I've got to kill this guy. This is paranoia on Saul's part, but it's the worst kind of paranoia. It's paranoia with just a little bit of truth in it. David is going to be the next king, but it's not because of David's ambition. He's not going to plot and scheme and lie his way to the position. God picked him. What are you going to do? And there's maybe one other reason Saul wants David dead. I don't put it on here, but some might. I don't want to ignore it though. God is allowing some evil spirit, some demonic force to torment this guy, Saul. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, why God would do that, so we won't do that here. But I can't blame this evil spirit for making Saul want to kill David. Saul does that just fine on his own. But it is an exacerbating circumstance. It probably tempts him to to act on those desires. So that's why Saul wants David dead. And he goes about trying to get that accomplished in three ways in this story. The first is the most obvious. Um, He literally tries to pin David to the wall with his spear. Now, it's important to note at this point in the story, I think through the whole chapter, David doesn't know that Saul wants to kill him. David seems to think that whenever Saul has these episodes, these attacks, David seems to think Saul's not responsible for his own behavior. And we see that in this spear incident, the first spear incident incident. There's one one word in verse 11 that makes me think David still doesn't think, that doesn't think Saul's responsible even for the spear thing. And it's this word right here. It's the word twice. Because here's what happens. David is in, he's the music guy. To try to get Saul's mind off of his torment, David goes in with his little uh, liar thing, right? He's kind of of red-headed, so he's he's got his Ed Sheeran thing going on in there. Uh, I used Chet Atkins a few weeks ago, so I tried to find someone younger. All right, you better get in there. The king's in a really bad way today. So he goes in, he starts playing, and all of a sudden, right? The spear just misses him and sticks in the wall, and David doesn't leave. In my mind's eye, I picture him just like playing harder and singing a like, right? And then Saul pulls it out of the wall, and he does it again before David decides, maybe there's someplace else I should be right now. David doesn't think, he doesn't know that Saul wants him dead. But Saul's not done trying to get David killed more covertly, not by a long shot. The second way he does this throughout this passage is continually uh, getting David to go fight uh, in warfare. In verse 13, we're told Saul removed David from Saul's presence, made him a, a captain over a thousand. This is, if you think about it, kind of a demotion. He was in Saul's inner circle. He was like a a staff officer. And he demotes him and puts him as a field commander. So that he's constantly in battle. And Saul says it in the passage. Maybe the Philistines will succeed where I failed with my spear. He does it over and over. You know... Saul, I think, also is trying to ruin David if he can't kill him. Because every time David goes out to lead a battle, yes, he might be killed, which is what Saul wants, but he also has a chance to lose, to make a mistake. What do you think Saul would do with the information if David did something unwise on the battlefield? And the third way... Saul tries to get at David, and to get rid of David is through this deal where he keeps trying to marry him to one of his, his daughters. Here's where that comes from, if you weren't here. Back in the David and Goliath story, chapter 17, King Saul made a promise. He said, if anyone will kill that giant, I will let him marry one of my daughters. He'll marry into the royal family and all of the wealth and privilege and all that stuff. So in some ways, Saul is obligated to do this. Saul's not a guy that cares too much about keeping his obligations though. He doesn't actually keep his obligations in this passage. Because if you remember, what he promised was the bridal price for one of his daughters in chapter 17 was what? kill the giant the bridal price has been paid but he keeps adding more he also promised one other thing to the man who would kill the giant what was that anybody remember it was freedom that's freedom from compulsory military service among other things david didn't get that by a long shot so here's what here's what Saul Does He thinks to himself, here's my older daughter Merib, I will give her to you as a wife. Only, here's the bridal price, here's the only thing I ask, be extremely brave for me. Here's all these military tasks that are going to take a ton of bravery and courage and skill to pull off. The first time, he thinks the Philistines will kill this guy. And I can get him to promise to to take that as the bridal price for marrying into the royal family. First time, David says, I couldn't do that. I'm not from the right sort of lineage, from the right stock. Someone from my family shouldn't be a royal. And he refuses. Saul's got another daughter. Her name's Michael. Michael, Saul hears, is in love with David. And Saul says... "Um, Maybe I can use this. Maybe I can use Michael to trap David. Real peach of a guy, this Saul, right? He doesn't seem to care about his daughters. He doesn't seem to care about his obligations. The only thing Saul cares about is Saul. He wants somehow. He doesn't explain how he thinks Michael can be a snare to David, but that's the picture's right there. I can use her to catch him. Maybe he thinks Michael will be more loyal to Daddy than to her husband, which is never a good thing. Maybe Michael will learn has some idolatry issues. Uh, maybe he thinks she'll be a, a spiritual snare. I don't know. We will see in a week or two how he tries to use her, though. This time, though, with Michael, this is beginning in verse 20. We can, David wants to marry Michael. At first, he sort of refuses, but Saul, Saul tells people in his administration, hey, go kind of pump David up. Tell him, man, the king loves you. You're the right kind of guy. We all love you, David. You should really do this. It'll be good for everyone. This time, David requests a bridal price, though. David does not want to enter into this in a way where someone could say, you know, he didn't even do the respectful thing. The bridal price is just the way things worked. Uh, There's some reasons in the ancient world this was done Story for a different sermon. But David, even though he's already paid the price that was required, it's like, I'm not getting into this in any way where Saul can say, you know, he didn't even do the right thing by our family. So he says, I'll do this, but you set the price. And Saul's like, oh man, I got him. And he says, here's what you got to do. You have got to, because he knows David wants in the royal family. So he sets a bridal price that he thinks is going to get David killed. You have to go kill a hundred Philistine soldiers and bring back, bring back, let's just say, incontrovertible proof that male soldiers have indeed died. Um, so David says, all right, and he goes and get, brings back twice the asking price. He brings back 200 proofs. That was quite a presentation, I am sure. And now, Saul has no choice but to go along with this. He's set the price. David has given twice the price. And so, David marries in to the royal family. So, just to summarize where we're at so far. How, how is, how's it going on this shortcut Saul wants to take? How's he doing getting rid of David? He's, he's, if I can just plot and scheme my way into getting rid of David, somehow I will feel better. Here's how, here's where all of the scheming and plotting and lying, here's what it's gotten Saul. Saul has a son named Jonathan who loves David more than he even loves himself and therefore more than he loves his dad. Saul has a daughter, Michael, who's in love with David and is now married to David. David now is legitimately, with Saul's blessing, a part of the royal family and thus in the pool of candidates to become the next king legitimately from the world's perspective. Now, he's not the next in line, don't get me wrong. He may be in the shallow end of the pool, but he's in the pool with Saul's blessing. Because of all the military actions that Saul required of David, Saul has managed to make David even more of a hero than he was before Saul started plotting to have him to kill him or have him killed. I mean, David is by this point a legitimate military heavyweight. because of all the different things he's asked him to do, David knows people far and wide in the army and just maybe they might be loyal to David someday because they not only know him, they love him. They respect him. They know he's the best on the battlefield. So it's safe to say, All of Saul's scheming against David has had the exact opposite effect of what he had hoped, right? Now why? Why is that? Why is it that the sovereign king of what's rapidly becoming the most powerful nation in that little neighborhood can't get a guy killed? Because of the third thing that was repeated over and over in this passage... The Lord was with David. The Lord was with David. The Lord was with David. See, this this actual little chapter of this story isn't isn't so much about David. This story is about Saul. This is about in one corner, it's a wrestling match. It's a tag team wrestling match. In this corner, you have Saul. And his tag team partner is a demonic force. And he's got all of his schemes and plans and plots to kill David. And in this corner, there's David who doesn't even know he's in the match. But his tag team partner is the loving protection of the God of the universe. Who wins? And it's not close. And then the last thing that gets repeated through this passage before we talk about what we learn is the result, the effect, that God's protection on David has on Saul. What happens to Saul every time he realizes God is with that guy? He gets scared. Saul was afraid of David. Why? because the Lord was with him. 14. David was prospering in all his ways because the Lord was with him. When Saul Saul saw that, I practiced all week saying, Saul saw. Oh, I just about had it. When Saul saw that David was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. The fear is growing. By the end of the passage, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, then Saul was even more afraid of whatever dread is. Do you know what's happening to Saul? you know what Saul's starting to realize? The one I think I'm fighting against ain't who I'm actually fighting against. He fights, he plots, he scams, and David prospers and survives, and flourishes. And the result is fear. Why? David doesn't want to kill Saul. David's not the one Saul's getting scared of. That's our passage. What should you and I learn from Saul and David in this passage. Lots, probably. I tried to boil it down to three things. First lesson from this passage, I think, is this. It's probably best to not uh, pick a fight with the sovereign God of the universe. It's probably best not to try and outfox God. God. Fighting God turns you into like in an old movie or an old TV show. I remember it happened on Gilligan's Island once. You ever see somebody get caught in quicksand in an old TV show or movie? The harder they fought, what happened? The lower they sunk. That's fighting against God. Now, that might be the most no-duh Obvious thing you've ever heard a pastor say. Don't try to fight against God. And let me write that one down. Right? I think we got that. Or do we? Because let me tell you, there have been times in my life where I needed to hear this you can't beat the one you're actually fighting against. I know I have needed to hear it. Maybe there's someone here who needs to hear this this morning. I know it feels like you're fighting for something that's going to make you happier, freer, wealthier. I know you're fighting for your freedom, for for your rights. But maybe, just maybe, the one you're fighting against is actually God. Maybe the one you're hiding from really isn't your spouse or your parents or your boss. You can't outfox God. You can't hide from God. You can't outsmart. You can't outwit You can't outlast, you can't out anything, God. The only hope you have is to surrender. And I want you to see this, something else that's a very sneaky way of fighting against God that doesn't seem like I'm fighting against God, but it is. And we see it from Saul in this passage. When we get stuck in envy, coveting, We are fighting against God every single time. That's why that's a sin. My go-to illustration is always this one, and I stole this from someone years ago. I'd love to give him credit. I have no idea who made this up, but it wasn't me. Let's say you got invited to someone's house for a meal, and they told you, no, no, don't bring anything. Just please, just please come. And so you go, you go over to, the, to their house and you sit down and they serve you this meal and when they come out and they place the plate in front of you, you say to your host, oh, I wish we were eating what they're serving at Dave and Liz's house tonight instead of this. You would never say that, would you? You know why? Because that would make you an awful person. That's why. But listen, every time I look at what's on someone else's plate and I feel like I can't be happy, I can't have peace, I can't have joy unless I have their house, their job, their marriage, their opportunity, their whatever. It is like I am saying to the one who has given me all that I have. I can't be happy unless you put on my plate what you put on hers. It is fighting against God. We do it all the time. Now, the, the good news about surrendering to God is it's not a loss. It's, it's not losing. Giving up when you give up toward God is a win. Because the second thing we learn from this passage is that God's love and protection really is all we will ever need. It will always be enough. You know how in this, in this passage, uh, David just comes across as so naive. Did you notice that? Like he doesn't, he doesn't know that Saul is trying to kill him when Saul is pretty obviously trying to kill him, Right? Yet David survives and flourishes. You know why? Because the Lord is with him. Now the Lord won't be with you and I the way he was with David because you and I aren't supposed to be the next king of Israel. But we have the love and the protection of God if we have accepted what his son did on our behalf. And we are, we are, impervious and bulletproof until he says otherwise and even when he says otherwise the worst this world could do to us kill us or execute us for the Christian rapidly becomes the best day of his or her life now David didn't even know that the enemy was right there trying to get him. And the life of the Christian is sort of like that. Now, I don't want us to be ignorant that we have an enemy trying to get at us, because we do. It's just, you know, the devil, I'll save that. Any schemes, we don't need to be ignorant that there is an enemy. We just know he's a whip dog dog. Paul said it this way, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you think about an answer to that question, the answer is actually lots of people. If God is for me, who can be against me? Pause while I make the list. Right? The, the understood answer is if God is for us, who can be against us like ultimately that will really matter in the end? God's love and God's protection it really is all we will ever need. And then finally, last lesson. You want to make the devil afraid. I don't encourage people to pick fights with Satan. All right, don't go. This is not a, a devil hunting lesson, but the devil knows he's whipped. But he loves to pick on people who are not aware of that fact. And the devil knows who he can't whip. And so what he likes to do is if he can just get God's people outside of God's protection somehow. And he's powerless to take us out of his hand. Don't get me wrong, but here's what he loves to do. If he can just get us focused On what's on someone else's plate. On what I don't have. This is right back to Eve in the garden. Look at that one piece of fruit that you can't eat. You know whose fault that is. Guess who's holding out on you. Right? It's God. Just, if he can just get us to take a shortcut. where he can where he has a better chance of getting out of us getting at us and also he knows he can turn that can turn the heavenly father's hand of protection into hand of discipline which is also protection it just doesn't feel as good so family i just want to remind you this morning those things that we feel like we have to have or we can't have peace and contentment, that's not where peace and contentment come from. It won't work. It's a lie. Oh, you don't understand, Pastor. I have got to blank so that I can blank. But if it's not what God says is best, in the long run, it's going to hurt It's going to hurt way worse than the hard road of just walking in the sufficiency of Christ. The way to make the devil afraid is just walk in the sufficiency of Christ. He is enough. What he says is best. I don't want to turn to the left or the right from that. But that's not the same thing as saying it's easy. But it's best. Just like... At the beginning of this sermon, I was talking about people who try to get out of work because they think they're going to be happy because we live in southwest Nebraska and there's nothing we value more. We were like, "Uh uh-huh, that's right. People need to stop taking them shortcuts, right? You get to work, find you a job. That's what you need, right? Listen, every shortcut we take is that stupid. It won't work. There's no shortcut to peace and contentment outside of what God has given, where he has put us, and for the purpose he has put us there with what we have, which is to glorify and pursue him. It is the best path you can walk. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, um, we, we sit here and stand here this morning. We are a bunch of shortcut takers. We look for the loopholes and we think we have better ideas than what you've already given us. God, we don't want to be like Saul though. Um, we want to be controlled by your Holy Spirit and your word. Because we know there is no shortcut toward real peace and real joy and real hope. It's only found in Christ. So why would we want to step away from what you have said is best? God, forgive us for our false steps, for our justifications of those steps, and help us to help one another know that the best thing we can do is walk with you. Because we already, we have your protection. Why would we want anything uh, that seems better? Our thanks for your word, for your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, once a month, we celebrate communion. Jesus just said, as as often as we do this, we're supposed to remember him. Uh, For us, as often as we do this, it's once a month. It's just kind of our little tradition. But this message, like, like all of them, it points to Jesus. If there's no shortcut toward real peace and real joy and real hope, than what God says is best. If that's true, it's true. So the last night of Jesus' life, after he had this meal with his friends, he went out uh, to a place called Gethsemane and he hid his face. And he basically said, Father, if there's a shortcut, I would sure like to know. I would sure like to find the off-ramp on this path, the loophole, the fine print. He asked three times. He said, well, I guess I've got my answer. The path my father says is best is always best, even if it hurts. We're gonna spend some time remembering his example As he refused to step off the path his father said was best to our benefit and his glory. As the guys come forward, let's pray for the bread. Uh, Lord Jesus, you asked us to remember you as often as we do this. So that's why we're here, that's what we want to do right now. It's, It's why we're here at this point. We remember that the path the Father set out for you was horrifically difficult. We remember that uh, that you were abandoned by your friends. You were uh, betrayed by a friend. You were denied by a friend you were beaten by those you created you were spat upon from the mouths you gave breath but you endured that because your father said it was best we remember you and we ask you to make us more like you Commune with us as the bread comes around, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, that night uh, before, he went out and fell on his face and asked for the off-ramp, uh, knowing what was coming, uh, Jesus took bread at the Passover meal and and broke it. He gave a little piece to each of his friends uh, so that they would know that what he was about to say, he said to them individually. He does the same through this uh, this little ritual we do today. This is my body and it's broken for you. So we do this in remembrance of what he did for us. Father, we know that sin costs death and blood. And now as these cups come around, we remember that his blood was adequate to to pay the penalty our sins required thank you for the blood while we, while we pray, while we uh, think, or while we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus had set his, his jaw uh, toward that hard road, that hard path that the Father said was best, but besides just the desire to be obedient, do you know what kept Jesus on that path all the way to the cross and the grave? The author of Hebrews says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him He endured the cross. When Jesus looked at that cross, he knew there was no shortcut to the joy beyond, but through the cross. Even if we want to think about this selfishly, I just want the most joy I can have. The path God puts us on is the best for joy even when it's hard. The author and the perfecter of our faith kept his eyes on the joy beyond as he endured the cross for us. He asked us to remember him while we do this.